looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 462. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard, or as John Cribbs has suggested, everything from Captain Kirk to Douglas Sirk. This episode was originally posted as a live stream on YouTube with Bill Tech, John Cribbs, and Adam Rakoff, but more importantly... We had so many great Wrong Real contributors hanging out in the chat, like Becca Deanna and Tony Stella, Bill Scurry, and many, many more. You'll definitely hear shout-outs to all of them during the discussion. But the topic at hand is James Bond, specifically, but not exclusively, the Roger Moore era. If you want the full experience with the lively debate in the chat about the best Bond, I urge you to click on the link to the video on YouTube. But if you're in your car or chilling in your cubicle at work, not to worry, we got you covered. Without further delay, I present to you our loving tribute to Sir Roger Moore. Excellent. Slightly reminiscent of a 34 Mouton. Then I must add it to my cellar. You uh, live well, Scaramanga. At a million dollars a contract, I can afford to, Mr. Bond. You work for peanuts. A hearty well done from Her Majesty the Queen and a pittance of a pension. Apart from that, we are the same. To us, Mr. Bond, we are the best. There's a useful four-letter word, and you're full of it. When I kill, it's on the specific orders of my government, and those I kill are themselves killers. Oh, come, come, Mr. Bond. You disappoint me. You get as much fulfillment out of killing as I do, so why don't you admit it? I admit killing you would be a pleasure. You should have done that when you first saw me. But then, of course, the English don't consider it sporting to kill in cold blood, do they? Don't count on that. I could have shot you down when you landed, but that would have been ridiculously easy. You see, Mr. Bond, like every great artist, I want to create an indisputable masterpiece once in my lifetime. The death of 007, mano a mano, face to face, will be mine. You mean stuffed and displayed over your rocky mantelpiece? That's an amusing idea, but I was thinking in terms of history. A duel between titans. My golden gun against your Walther PPK. Each of us with a 50-50 chance. Six bullets to your one? I only need one. Sounds a bit old-fashioned, doesn't it? I mean, pistols at dawn, that sort of thing. Indeed it is, Mr. Bond. But it still remains the only true test for gentlemen. I doubt if you qualify on that score. 
However, I accept. As soon as I finish this delicious lunch that Nick Knack has prepared for us. What is going on, everyone? James Hancock here. Thanks for joining us on today's live stream, where we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite gentleman spy, James Bond. We'll be tackling some Bond 25 news, and more importantly, we're going to be celebrating the Roger Moore era of the franchise. Seven films between the years 1973 and 1985. And my first exposure to Bond was Free Eyes Only on HBO as a kid, followed by Octopussy and A View to a Kill in the Theater. So I have no shame in saying that Roger Moore is my favorite Bond. Now, I'm not arguing that he's the best Bond, only that he's my favorite. And today we'll be getting into the reasons why. But joining me for this discussion, I have three of my favorite movie connoisseurs. We have filmmaker Bill Tech, the man behind One Day Since Yesterday, a documentary I consider required viewing for all film fans. We have John Cribbs, head writer for ThePinkSmoke.com. And we have producer Adam Rakoff, who, when he's not working with actor Matthew Modine and animator Bill Plimpton, is nice enough to cook up all, cook up all the thumbnails I use to promote these live streams. Adam's going to be hanging out in the chat, so if you have any questions, definitely let him know. Super chat donations will get answered first, but we're going to do our best to get all of them over the course of this live stream, so don't be shy. In any event, let's dive right down to it. Bill, we're going to start with you. What was your first encounter with Roger Moore as 007, and what about his interpretation of the character is unique in your eyes? I think that wry sense of humor that everyone always talks about, that, that, that sense of humor and that sense of fun, a little bit more light. I mean, I'm not the only one to say that. But I feel like people underestimate his darkness side as well. He did have a dark side, you know, whether he's kicking that kid over the side of the uh, canoe or whether he's slapping somebody around and uh, you only live twice. I mean, he, he could be rough and rugged with the best of them. That was my take. My first encounter with him was um, the spy who loved me, and that just blew my mind. Now, do you saw that in the theater, or are you catching on? Actually, I'm assuming you saw that in real time, 1977. I would be 10 years old. Uh, my mom walked me in there, and I saw that ski, and I was like, oh, the guy's going to die right at the beginning of the movie. Boof! The big Union Jack comes out. How cool of a beginning is that? Nobody does it better, and I was all in. And then, unfortunately, I learned a lot about the way people should behave from watching James Bond. So that's affected me over the years. Well, being a gentleman and being charming and being sophisticated are all attributes that I would uh, deem as a uh, positive. Cause for me, Roger Moore, he solves with a wink and a smile, what Sean Connery would like would solve with like a, a twisting of the arm or the breaking of the neck. And I like the two different approaches and my heart, there's room in my heart for both actors all the way. But Sean Connery, he's a big, strong guy, and he solved things with his muscles. But Roger Moore always just seemed to be able to, with manners and intelligence, be able to kind of find the uh, most elegant solution to a problem, which is, for me, what makes him the, the quintessential gentleman spy. So I, I have no problems using uh, Roger Moore as a, as a role model in all things. He was a great guy in real life, too, and people loved him. If you saw, you know, after he passed, uh, they rest in peace a couple of years ago, whether it was Jane Seymour saying what a gentleman he was and how he looked out for her on the set. She was much younger than everyone. And he looked out for her. He was like an older brother type, or, or Grace Jones saying how much she was crazy about him, how sweet he was. But... Uh, I think he brought that sweetness to the role and then an edge as well. When I say I modeled a lot of behavior on James Bond, I mean like killing skiers and that kind of thing. Oh, gotcha. Fair enough. Well, one reason <laughs> I learned to ski was because of uh, For Your Eyes Only and uh, it's some of my all-time favorite ski scenes. But when you mentioned um, uh, Spy Who Loved Me, that opening stunt, I still think is one of the all-time great stunts in any era from any country. It's just, and they almost lose the shot. They're panning down, they're panning down, and these rocks come up, and they almost missed it entirely. <laughs> but luckily, the uh, the shot survives. But I'm going to smack the tennis ball real quick over to John Cribbs. So this next question is for both of you, but I'm going to have John Cribbs go first. 
in my opinion, there is no perfect Roger Moore Bond movie, but there are ingredients in all those movies that make it run special. So I'm going to give you the chance to create the perfect Roger Moore Bond film that I never got to see by selecting the following from any of his seven movies. You're going to pick the director, the writing team, theme song slash title sequence, villain, henchman, Bond girl, exotic trap, chasing gadget car, and of course your favorite charming one-liner or double entendre. So put on your producer hat or your filmmaker hat and give us the ultimate Roger Moore experience. All right. Wow. Jumping right into it. Uh, Absolutely. Deep into I, the pool. I love it. <laughs> well, let me just say real quick, um, my first Bond experience just is, was this little film, A View to a Kill. Uh, it was the first one that I saw. I, we had it taped at my house. So it was based on the title alone, which I was just I found intriguing. I still don't know what it means exactly. <laughs> but, um, but I just love that title and uh, it was immediately intrigued. And that was the first one I ended up seeing, which was perfect because then I could go see the Dalton movies in the theater and get into the Bond world right away. Um, but yeah, so uh, it was directed by John Glenn, who in my opinion is the Bond director. He did five in a row, starting with um, uh, For Your Eyes Only and then ending with the two Dalton movies. Uh, but he was with the Bond family for a long time. He's responsible for the bobsled race in On Her Majesty's Secret Service and the skier who goes off the mountain and the Union Jack bopping that Mr. Tech just mentioned. And he did the um, the amazing parachuting opening of Moonraker. He was second unit director for all of those and, and an editor as well of those films. So for me, when it comes to director, I got to go John Glenn any time of the day. Yeah, agreed. He's he's what well, he's my first exposure to the Bond world. There are a lot of great directors, a lot of great writers who worked with the franchise. But John Glenn, for me, he's his whole style and approach is locked in amber. So, what about some of the other ingredients? What about writing? For writing, I really, you know, I appreciate Christopher Wood a lot because not only did he uh, was he responsible for doing two movies that had nothing to do with the Ian Fleming books, he ended up uh, novelizing both of them: Spy Who Loved Me and <laughs> Moonraker. Um, did his own uh, uh, book versions of them since they derived almost entirely from the uh, the Fleming. Um, but I, I can't pick him in good conscience because I think Michael Wilson and Richard Maybaum, who took over as the writing team from uh, For Your Eyes Only into the other John Glenn, Roger Moore films, that's the team for me. And of course, Michael Wilson would end up becoming one of the co-producers of the series, becoming very integral to them as well. So I love that stretch, that John Glenn stretch, and they're the guys who wrote those movies. All right, keep going. So what about the key ingredients of the uh, of the different Roger Moore flicks? Oh man, so okay, man, this is tough, James. I don't know. Um for theme for theme starting with theme song. I mean, what is your favorite theme song? This is a great era of theme songs for Bond. I think Live and Let Die is one of the best songs ever. Period. I think it's better than any of the Beatles songs. I think it's, you know, miles better than anything else McCartney had ever done. Um but as a Bond song, I nobody does it better is such a gorgeous, sexy song as Bill Teclock. Makes me cry every time. Yeah. So, um, and that was so quintessentially Bond and so quintessentially Roger Moore too, getting that real essence of what Bond is about, which is that he is the best at what he does. He's better at doing things than anybody else. You know, nobody else can take on uh, henchmen with metal arms and metal teeth and uh, launch into space to save everybody except for Roger Moore. So uh, I got to go with nobody does it better just because, it's a gorgeous song and such a perfect anthem for this era of James Bond. Tech, what do you think? Uh, where, where do you stand? Best, because you got to pick not only the best song, but the best title sequence that accompanied. Obviously, Maurice Bender, was it Maurice Bender, that you say his name? He did all of them and he has that classic silhouette, but they're not all created equal. Where do you stand on the best opening sequence? I don't know if it's Bender or Binder, 
uh, is it Binder John? But it, the, I, my favorite, it's 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 going to be tough because The Spy Who Loved Me is the high watermark for me of all the Bond movies. So I don't want to be too repetitive, but you know, strong he, choice. You know, Gilbert's my favorite director, Louis Gilbert and uh, Christopher Woods, uh, and the other gentleman who wrote that are my favorite writers. Um, it has my favorite title sequence and my favorite song as well. Um, I, I, and it's interesting because. It is like it's the perfect thing for the '70s, you know. This is like sexual liberation and the, everything that's going on in the '70s just ties in perfectly with James Bond. And also, like the technology gets there. That movie looks amazing. And it's funny because the later movies don't look, in my opinion, as good. I'm not a big John Glenn guy. I like the the Gilbert's movies. That's the peak of James Bond for me. Fair enough. Well, I just want to press pause real quick and say hello to some of the folks in the chat. That many of them are our dear friends that we have collaborated with in the past. We got the great Bill Scurry, who's been on here a few times. We got Matthias Vanderus, Moose Matson, hell yeah, from Twitter. We've got uh, Jerry Nataraja, very nice. And I'm, is that Jerry at the movies? I'm assuming. And uh, we got Akuma Snow. I don't know if I know uh, Akuma Snow, but anyway, great to have you here. Duncan the Small, hell yeah. And we got the great Fred Schaefer, who's been on Wrong Real talking about Paul Newman. Uh, and oh, Sky Wingfield, he's down in Florida with his family. He's traveling from the, uh, from <laughs> Wales. So he's nice enough to pop in on a holiday weekend. So hello. He's about to, to uh, head into uh, something at Disney World. So he'll, he's not on for long. Gotcha. Very cool. We got Jacob Rivera, who I just did a podcast with. Uh, Pre live teaser. That's a great name. I don't know who that is, but welcome to the chat. Yeah, welcome to everybody. Tony fucking Stella. Holy shit. All right. And he's obviously he's a big Sean Connery guy. So this entire episode might make his ears bleed because we're going to be sharing a lot of praise on Roger Moore. But as we he and I discussed in the past, if Sean Connery is the equivalent of Bruce Lee to Hong Kong cinema, then Roger Moore is the Jackie Chan of the uh, James Bond franchise. It's like serious versus humor, but they're both badass in their own right. So yeah, Tony, welcome to the chat. Well, Cribs, going back to you, picking up where we left off with all the key ingredients. So beyond title sequence, best villain of the seven James Bond flicks starring Roger Moore. That's another tough one. I'm not as big a fan of The Man with the Golden Gun as some people. I, I, I mean, I like all of these movies. Um, well, I don't like the movie The Man with the Golden Gun that much, but I love the villain. That's the thing. Chris, I mean, Chris Lee as the villain, you can't go wrong. Obviously, he's the, per the perfect, you know, uh, opposite of Bond or, or the perfect um, foil for Bond being, you know, this suave uh, guy who has everything, could have everything he wants and can seduce any woman, but he's the he's the bad guy, you know, he's not the good one. Uh, so I, you can't go w wrong with that. Um, but I also love Hugo Drax from Moonraker. I think um, played by uh, Michael Lengate is just a great, uh, has so many great lines, like see that some harm comes to him is a phenomenal line. <laughs> um, obviously you got to give him credit for being one of the great super villains that Bond would, uh, that Bond faced wanting to destroy life on earth and restart things up in the heavens. Uh, so it's hard between them. A Scaramanga though, I would be fine with being the villain because he and Roger Moore play off each other in that movie. Absolutely. All right. What about you, Mr. Tech? What a fa favorite villain from any of these seven flicks? It's a tie between Scaramanga and, um, uh, the spy who loved me again. I hate to go back to that, but uh, those uh, it's funny because I've been I'm watching John talk and I'm getting ready to say Stromberg, right? It's Carl Stromberg, Carl Stromberg, yeah. Uh, I thought he was a terrific villain. He really in the classic villain mode from the outfits to the ridiculous lair to the I love how he has that that pistol under the table 
with a big old tube to get to to shoot you in the nuts. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> does the bullet need help? Like, can't the bullet travel there on its own? So just that level of like, that's ridiculous, but it'll be it'll be complicated. It slows the bullet down, so James can get out of the way. What is he thinking? But uh, that is, he's a great villain with a trap door that feeds you to a shark. And the fact that he really does kind of hate the surface world and really, he reminds me of Drax and Moonraker. I love those guys. I love that kind of villain. And Scaramanga, of course, um, he's a weird, kinky villain. He likes to make love just before he kills. Um, he's, he's got, got a couple nipple, baby. <laughs> he does. And that's not something to be underestimated. As a man that sports more than a few nipples himself. Absolutely. Can he can have a... He has an additional erogenous zone that the rest it, of us lack. And it actually helps with your aim if you're a marksman. People don't know that. Do you well, guys know that Carl Stromberg has webbed hands? Did you ever notice that? I did not. No, that's awesome. I he think does. I remember that. I think I remember that. that, is that is that's so why he doesn't shake hands? That's why he's embarrassed? They don't make a big deal out of it. But yeah, in the close-ups, you can see he's got like extra skin between... You know his thumb and his finger. It's because Robert Moore recorded hands anyway, and he kind of puts his hands together. So yeah, but I never noticed that was like the reason for his little affectation. I thought he was just being coy. All right, well I've got an incredibly important question, maybe the most important question I'll ask you. I mean I've got actual real questions. But we're just getting the preliminaries out of the way, but best Bond girl from these seven films. I mean, you've got just a, a, a who's who of some of those beautiful women who ever lived. And some of them are warrior women. Some of them are TNA. Some of them are scientists. Some of them are CIA agents. So it is a smorgasbord of fascinating women. But Mr. Cribs, best Bond girl from this whole period. For me, uh, my favorite Bond film period is For Your Eyes Only, which is kind of interesting because I recognize that that movie's got a lot of flaws. The opening and closing of the film are a little ridiculous and it doesn't have that epic feel that, you know, Spy Who Loved Me or Moonraker does. You know, it's very, obviously there was an, a very purposeful attempt to tone things down and to, as Tech pointed out recently, a review saying that they literally wanted to bring Bond back down to earth with this movie. But for me, whereas a movie like On Her Majesty's Secret Service feels like a masterpiece with flaws that work against it, I feel like Free Your Eyes Only doesn't scream masterpiece, but it has so many amazing things within it that it makes it a better movie. And I mean, just from the, just from the chase, uh, the chase scene under the, with the hilly mountains, with the uh, olives going everywhere, the scaling the, the, the hill at the end to get the bad guys, the ski chase, there's so much greatness in it. And one of the things that's great about Alina Havelock, um, played by the beautiful Carol Bouquet, who of course is, you know, was in uh, Louis Boonwell's last film um, and was gorgeous in that as well. Uh, but this is just, she's just great because she's a Bond girl with a mission of her own. She's got that kick-ass crossbow, you know, she's out for revenge. She more than holds her own in this film uh, while, you know, kind of <laughs> there for the, you know, the usual things, the eye candy and the uh, woman who needs to be saved. But and she when she and Bond get together uh, and they go do all the underwater scenes together, I think that that's just a great section of the movie. Um, and so for me, she's the Bond girl from to beat from this era. And I think... While Bond is famous for his lines, she might have my favorite line by any Bond girl. The very is, for your eyes only, my darling. And they drop the towels and they dive in to go swimming. It's like, yes, fuck yeah. Like, scuba diving in the moonlight with Carol Bouquet, you, you can't beat it. But Mr. Tech, what about you? Uh, she's not an official Bond girl, 
but my favorite is Caroline Murno, who's the sort of she's yeah, she's yeah. The, the the kind of the henchwoman or the lackey or the assistant Absolutely. helicopter of, pilot uh, of right and boat boat she you know stretch the boat as well of uh, Drax I'm sorry of uh, Stromberg in for your eyes in uh, the spy who loved me and she you know her, you know her from the Italians movies like Star Crash and things like that and she's so amazingly gorgeous. And there's a still of her and Barbara Bach, and I didn't even see Barbara Bach in the still. I just saw all Carolyn. Mar I just can't get my head around that that person even exists uh, in the world. Now, official Bond girls, I would go with uh, Miss Goodhead from Moonraker, played by Lois Childs. Um, I love her little kind of wispy Southern accent. Um, I love her seriousness. I think she's a terrific actress. And I just, I just, I find her really kind of intelligent, sexy, very pretty. Carol plays she's a no part slouch. Pregnant. She might, Did I think she, she might be the only, she's the only, I think she's the only pregnant Bond girl. But yeah, she played a pre while, while with child. I did not know that. Um, yeah, she's super, man. I think she's really, and I love that she's, you know, it's, it's 1979. So feminism is, is at its, at its peak and the women, and she keeps giving Bond a hard time. He keeps saying like, oh, a woman scientist. And she just keeps giving him right back to him. Super <laughs> sexy. Um, well, if you have a name like Dr. Goodhead, you might develop a little, uh, need to, you know, kind of not take any shit from anybody. <laughs> it's like with my last name, Hancock, people like to make fun of that, but real quick shout out to the great Alexandra, AKA film and vinyl, who I see just popped into the uh, chat. Welcome to the, uh, welcome to the hang session. Always a pleasure. And oh, and Arca Verity. Very cool. So yeah, a lot of familiar faces from, from Twitter. Welcome to everybody. Very cool. I love that the right. first two Roger Moore movies, the Bond girl is kind of more of a damsel in distress, you know, who isn't, you know, by the by the half of the movie she's basically just being saved by james again and again but that with spy who loved me on you got women who you know had their own mission they had their own agenda going on they were powerful women i like that they made that change up and i agree that the hollywood had being a cia agent and a badass space scientist is a really good pick and that was really yeah. the that was really the cool thing about those about the spy who loved me was barbara bach even though of course i prefer carolyn okay uh, I'm sorry, sorry, Barbara, yeah. Barbara, Barbara, yeah, yeah. She was so she was such a badass that she kept uh, thwarting him at every turn, and that that was very surprising for me as a ten year old. And even rewatching it now, I was like, "That's really cool." She's always kind of one step ahead of him, and uh, I don't know, she's she's beautiful too, of course. Yeah, and, yeah. and also, but, but like the cigarette when she blows the uh, the dust in his face and takes him out right when he thinks things are about to get interesting. So yeah, Barbara Bach is. Maybe my all-time favorite Bond girl, but it all depends upon what I've seen recently and how much caffeine I've had or how much alcohol I've had. But it's hard to beat, uh, you know, Ringo Starr. He's a very, very lucky man. Let's just let's just say that. That's right. And they started together in Caveman. Which is not as good a movie as Spy Who Loved Me, but I did see that on TV as a kid and had a had a fine time. All right, so now we're going to kind of combine all these together just to get, get, get a little progress, get down the road a little bit. But I just want you, without going into great detail, just... Favorite exotic trap, chasing gadget car, like all, all the toys. Just uh, and so just kind of rattle them off, Mr. Cribs. As far as exotic trap, you got to go Gator Farm, right? I mean, that seems incredible. I love that that setup. I love that they just happened upon this place while they were shooting. And uh, I should I've mentioned to everybody if you can get a chance to read Roger Moore's uh, day by day uh, diary on making live and let die. It's a terrific book. I mean, obviously he's a very witty and fun writer as much as he is a person, but it's also just great for anyone interested in the filmmaking and the actual technical things that went on in that and the stunts. It's very, very in depth on that stuff. Um, but the fact that they came upon this place and incorporated into the film that they 
tied these uh, alligators down so a stuntman actually ran across, not stuntman, the guy uh, who actually ran the, the farm ran across the backs of these gators to get away is just an incredible sequence. And when you're, you know, however old I was when we first see that 10, 11 years old, you just flip, do a backflip. Like that's exactly the kind of thing you want to see in a movie. And that's the kind of trap you want Bond to be in. Hell yeah. I couldn't agree more. What are you, Mr. Tech? Fav fav favorite exotic trap? Well, I don't know if it's a trap exactly, but I do like when um, Carol Bouquet and Roger Moore get dragged from the boat and they kind of, you know, they have the sharks and they're, they're getting cut up by the coral. I think it really speaks to the spirit of that movie, which is like, we don't have all these extra things, but here's an interesting way to kill people as opposed to just shooting them. Um, so it's like, a, it's like. And a the scenes are faked. Carol Bouquet couldn't go underwater due to sinus issues. If you look closely, you can see it's just wind and the bubbles are added after, but Carol Bouquet actually did no shots underwater, which is why those shots of her look so startlingly beautiful and clear is that she never actually got underwater. Oh my goodness, I did not realize that. I didn't. Yeah. Um, I always thought that was pretty cool because it's a DYI kind of trap. Um, and then I, I do like when he's stuck in the uh, G-Force machine in Moonraker. Yes. And it looks like Roger Moore's really in there taking all those cheese. I don't know if he was, but how do you fake that? How do you fake that at that point anyway? So I always thought that was pretty great. That's another yeah, Roger Moore-Jackie Chan comparison. In uh, Operation Condor, Jackie gets the wind machine and his face gets all goofy. It's exactly like that scene. That's a great, that's a great analogy. All right, well, chase scene, I mean, Cribs already mentioned it, but I have to just put my own two cents in here. Maybe the best chase scene I've ever seen is in For Your Eyes Only on skis, where you got, what's that a uh, great tune by Bill Conti that they're uh, like runaway? It's like, I mean, just when the way it kicks in and the way it gets going, you have like guys on motorcycles and machine guns chasing Bond through a ski resort. It makes my face break with happiness every time I see it. And I just, I, I cannot get enough of it. So I think it's not only the best chase scene of any of these movies, maybe the best chase scene of all time, but what are you guys, any strong contenders for chase scenes? Real quick, Jacob Revere just, uh Donated 1999. Oh shit! Well, well Mr. Rivera, can't thank you enough. What's that old expression? Uh, aren't you so sweet that you make sugar taste just like salt? So, all right. So, how do you think the bonds hold up with the gadgets and the stories as decades fly by? Is it just nostalgia, or connected memories? You're going up with a particular bond. No easy answer for that. Obviously, nostalgia is a huge part of it, and I would be when you show Bond movies now to younger kids. The, the reactions all over the place. I did show Goldfinger to my little brother a couple of years ago when he was like 13 or 14, and he got totally into it, which I was surprised by. But obviously the question is, will these movies survive for later generations? I think the best way to show young people these movies is perhaps with highlight reels of like, the great, the best bil villain beats and the best you know, beautiful one-liners by you know, stunning women. But some of these movies, even for me, and I'm a Bond fan, uh, God damn, like, the last like 30 minutes is a little slow and so on and so forth, but... Yeah, they, perhaps the gadgets feel dated, but the idea of a gentleman spy fighting in the Cold War, we just don't see stuff that's like so fun. I feel like it's like going to the circus or going to the carnival where like Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli, they were showmen, they want to deliver entertainment. And now so many action films have to have like this gritty realism or have to be about real world consequences. And Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman realize, no, these should be pure escapism. They should just be a delight, like eating a bowl of ice cream. But what about you guys? How do you think these Bond films hold up now without the added benefit of nostalgia? Well, I think when it comes to the gadgets specifically, uh, the Bond films have done a great job kind of evolving with the times in terms of 
the idea that, that that Bond doesn't necessarily need a gadget or that anything could be a gadget in Bond's hands. I think specifically of Timothy Dalton using the lighter that he gets as a gift from uh, Felix and his wife to kill a bad guy at the end of License to Kill. You know. What did I cut off, or did Mr. Cribs cut off? I think it was just him. It might be Mr. Cribs. All right. Well, well, while we wait for him to come back, Mr. Tech, I'll take the tennis racket and I'll smack like, the ball attention. over here. Oh, Not nope, giving you're back. Branch. You cut off there for a second. Just uh, can you repeat what you just said? We we lost you for a few seconds. Sure. That even in the modern era, you know, that it doesn't have to be Q Branch giving him something saying, "Pay attention, 007. You know, it's something that Bond can utilize as a tool to get what he needs done, and then that's basically what it is. So there's. It's Bond is the man. The gadget is just the way he uses it, and he's the only one who could do the what he does. Gotcha. Well, well, Tech, you got a few years on us. How do you how do you, how do you think these movies fare with the uh, younger generation? Is it are we just uh, old men talking about things that have no relevance anymore, or is there some fresh relevance that keeps these things forever forever young? I have never met a young person that doesn't flip out if you show them James Bond in the right context. And I don't, I don't think you show them highlight reels at all. I think you sit them down, put on a cool movie like, like uh, 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 again, I'm going back to For Your Eyes Only, but uh, um, uh, no, uh, um, God, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me works just as well. I think there's a maturity and an adultness to the movie that was even there when we were watching it. I mean, he was an older guy, and he's still an older guy. So they're he the started same. when he was 45. He was like yeah. 57 when he went. <laughs> so you're, you're just like watching old people. And it's kind of fun. Like, oh, you can be old and you can still have all that cool stuff going on. And look at this guy. He's getting laid and he's having fun. He's got all these gadgets. And people, at least uh, my uh, son and my friends, kids, whether even bo you know boys and girls, they all respond to it like, this is really fun and cool. Yes, the pacing sometimes is a little glacial. But in the good ones, they boogie right along. And it, it, you got to do it. You can't do it late night. You got to catch them like at seven with a with a full stomach and a Coca Cola. They will become Bond fans for life. Excellent. Yeah, I love it. It's one of the things where, like, even as I get older, when I watch these movies, I'm not even watching them as action movies anymore. I, I really don't care about any of the fight scenes. I really don't care about a great deal of it. I'm watching them for the humor and the dialogue because people just don't write movies like this anymore. They would get in trouble or they would, like, you know, people would wag their fingers at them saying, shame on you, etc. And so when I watch these movies, they're like these just extraordinary comedies. And they're like almost like a comedy of manners in a lot of ways. And I, I, I think every decade you need one good Bond movie. To keep things going and as long as you get one great one per decade they will keep making bond movies until the end of time and so we've been lucky they've been able to keep it going as long as possible but i think for the connoisseurs for people who love spy stories for people who love action they can definitely still watch the ones from the 60s and have an absolute blast but uh when it comes to creating the going back to my question the perfect roger moore movie the last big one what is your most important or your most like beloved favorite one-liner or double entendre from any of these because there are a hell of, a lot of bad ones but also a lot of good ones to choose from in these movies cribs i'll let you go first uh let me let i'm gonna let tech go first because i have to think about oh, it tech, right, far away. well roger moore has so many good ones you know what i mean when they ask him at the end of uh of uh the spy who loved me you know uh, what do you think we're doing keeping the british end up i mean he's so it's so pervy it's so funny it's so dirty but uh, my favorite line is not a Roger Moore line. It's the line, and, and we, we did it on Twitter, but for anybody that missed it, I, I actually wrote it down because it's it's just too good. They said that Bond says, who would want to kill me in The Man with the Golden Gun, his first outing as, as 007. Um, the second. Oh, right, second, second outing. The first is uh, Live and Let Die, pardon me. He says, who would want to put a contract out on me? And M says, jealous husbands, outraged chefs, humiliated tailors. The list is endless. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and oh, Grim, 
Cribs pointed out, like, that's one of the greatest lines in the whole series, you know? And he doesn't, Roger doesn't get that line. Um, oh, that's great. And I, I also love the interplay, you know, the secretary, the woman who played a money penny played her until I believe was Octopussy her last film. Beauty Kill was her last film. And she was the same money penny for all those movies. And it's just, it, there's a, such a cool kind of sophistication to these movies, to their relationship. Um, I didn't get to tell you my favorite chase, by the way. And I, oh, I, 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 I do love the chase in For Your Eyes Only. That's one of my favorite, that's my second favorite Bond. Um, but I prefer the one in The Spy Who Loved Me. The 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 song that plays is called Bond Seventy Seven by Marvin Hamlish, but of course it has elements of the of the John Barry theme. I think I'm getting that right. And the minute that they give him that Lotus and they turn the corner, and you have the license, those European tags going down, and machine gun turrets coming out, and it's incredibly exciting. It's like a disco song. If you look up Bond Seventy Seven, it's my favorite actually... Bond car period of all the Bond cars, even more than the Aston Martin. It's something about watching it just zip off and into the water and turn into a sub. It's the <laughs> essence of Bond. It's the coolest thing ever, which is why it's so freaking cool. And they blow it up right away in For Your Eyes Only. You're like, oh, he's gonna get like a book. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> and then he's got to jump in that car. I remember Siskel and Ebert raving about how cool it was that it's just his amazing skill as a spy that gets him out of the jams and not the gadgets, which had been dominating Absolutely. everything. Of course, I love both. Um, but so that's my favorite chase. And I think the music is right is right there with it. Let me ask you guys something real quick, if I can. Do, you, fire away. do you consider the Roger Moore era Bond films to be science fiction? <sighs> You got I mean, solitaire, you got solitaire and live and let die. Who is genuinely psychic, right? She has she genuine powers. magic powers. It's proved in the movie. And you, so do the villains. They go and into space. The they got a car that can go underwater. I mean, they got stuff that is way more ostentatious than the Connery era. So, do you think this is actually, for mo the most part, for at least the first four films, actual fantasy or science fiction? If you consider superhero movies science fiction, then yes, I think it, it has as much in common with science fiction as the superhero genre does. And I feel like you can easily make a case for Bond as a superhero as opposed to a super spy, but whatever you want to call him, like the, the terminology, like there's no reason getting lost in the weeds in the terminology, but I, it certainly qualifies. And I don't think Fear Eyes Only is a science fiction movie, but Moonraker sure as hell is. I would say You Only Live Twice, the Sean Connery one, sure as hell is. I mean, you have like a, a spaceship eating spaceships and like the giant volcano, et cetera. So it, it's a great genre hopper. And I, I, sometimes it veers into gritty realism and sometimes it goes completely bananas with Bond in a jetpack at the beginning of the Thunderball and stuff like that. So it certainly uh, applies with a lot of the films. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Yes. And it's funny because they were covered by sci-fi and fantasy magazines and they're certainly liked by the same people. Um, my whole problem is when it gets to Earthbound, not Earthbound in an exhilarating way, like for your eyes only, but uh, I don't, you know, I, I get cold with view to a kill and, and, and stuff like that. When, when he's in normal places like San Francisco on a fire truck, they lose me. Yeah, you need India, you need something exotic. But going back to the whole double entendre one-liner thing, my favorite has to be at the end of Moonraker. And once again, it's not Bond line, it's actually Q line. It's, I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. And then you cut to Lois Child saying, James, take me around the world one more time. And, uh, and the Bond song that I don't even like that much, the theme song to Moonraker, the way it kicks in and the spaceship keeps going, it's like, woo, I, I, I start doing cartwheels. Something like that, the end of Moonraker, which is not one of my favorite Bond movies, but the end just really works for me. But Mr. Cribbs, favorite double entendre or one-liner in the uh, in this era? Well, I, you know, I couldn't come up with the double entendre. I couldn't think of another one other than the ones that have been mentioned already. But, you know, a line that always cracks me up for some reason, it's in Live and Let Die after Bond, uh, they, they uh, deposit a snake into his hotel room to try to kill him. 
and he gets the better of the snake. And then Rosie Carver ends up walking to the bathroom, seeing the dead snake and screaming. Roger Moore, perfect delivery, says, oh, yes, the snake, I forgot. You should never go in there without a mongoose. (laughs) 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 So for me, that's Roger Moore right there. That perfect timing, you know, keeping his cool. That's what it's all about. That is beautiful. Well, I think it's a perfect time to pause and get some questions either from Twitter or from the chat. Mr. Rakoff, do you have any good questions from the chat or any good questions we picked up online over the last few days that you want to dive in with? Oh, Tristan Lofting's in here. Very cool. What's up, Tristan? Yeah, uh, I'll just say I'll just add that uh, a line that always cracks me up is in the beginning of The Spy Who Loved Me when M says tells Money but we'll tell him to pull out immediately, and they cut to him in bed. I always found that that line rather. It's classic. Yeah. It, it doesn't get better. That <laughs> is very funny, man. Just the the edit. You know, that's where editing is brilliant. You know, you cut to that and him in bed, and he's he's pulling out. So, um, yeah. Uh, one question I had in for you guys, and I'll get to some of the others we have from the from the group, is at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me, the very end of the credits, it says the next film will be For Your Eyes Only, but of course, the next film was Moonraker. Does anyone here know why that Star happened? Wars. Star Wars happened. Yeah. <laughs> Star Wars and Close Encounters. Obviously, they even used the Close Encounters theme in Moonraker <laughs> as like a password to get into a room. Like, bah, 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 boom, bah. So, um, yeah, the genres changed overnight, and they had to cash in. And Moonraker, while it's not one of my favorites, was the highest-grossing Bond for a very, very long time. It set the record for years. It's interesting, too, because Fleming's book, Moonraker, um, is not a space adventure at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually the best un- te- technically unadapted Bond story. It's a great book. Uh, it's one of my favorites of the Flemings. But they use nothing other than Hugo Drax. The name Hugo Drax, pretty much everything else is invented for the film. Uh, but I guess just that title, Moonraker, sounded yeah. suitably Star Wars enough that they figured, well. And, and the space that. shuttle was a new thing at the time. It was a big, you know, news making, um, you know, advance in the space, you know, in the space um, race, if you will. So it was a, a very topical, timely subject so yeah so we have a lot of good but tony's got a great line here he says new bond should be a period piece back again to the 1950s that's actually really cool like because bond is such a creature of the cold war and you know specter and going up against russia etc if y'all could have your way say new 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 creative team new writers new directors new star new everything there's a clean slate after bond 25 would bond as a franchise work as a period piece permanently set in the 50s and 60s, never to escape that period ever again. Well, you can keep the 50s, but uh, my man Tarantino said if he was given the Bond franchise, he would set it in swinging 60s London. He said, where else would you put it? I mean, why isn't it there now? Like, And I agree, all that Austin Power stuff, it's so cool. Like, The Austin Power movies are hilarious, but that's also a super cool milieu. Like, you know, uh, is it Canterbury Street? How do you pronounce that cool street? Back in swinging 60s London that was the center of the epicenter of everything. When you let's see James Bond try acid and and, and and check out the who. I mean, come on. That would be the coolest thing ever. So I would set it in, in 60s London for sure. Um, and I think it would work great there. I also think it would work great in the 70s now looking back. And not in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, but in a, in a kind of a gritty 70s way it might be fun to place bond in all the eras again you know like wonder woman 80 i guess it's in the 80s i don't know but that kind of idea might be super cool with with period music and period uh, cinematography and so forth that'd be awesome 
Well, we just got a massive super chat donation from Bill Scurry, and then we'll get back to Adam's questions. But since you got to talk about Jim Brolin, what almost happened with that? Now, something tells me Cribs has some strong thoughts on this because I saw you tweeting about this the other day. So for people out there who don't know, enlighten them about this, uh, about this creative direction that was not taken. So uh, even Roger Moore, you know, was willing to leave the franchise earlier than he did. He, you know, acknowledged that he was getting up there in years and it was starting to look a little ridiculous for a man in his late 50s to be wooing a woman in their her mid to late 20s. Um, but uh, they, they, they ended up staying with him on Octopussy because Never Say Never Again was being developed. Um, for anyone who knows about the, the interesting legal loophole that Kevin McClory had with the Bond films, Ian Fleming had originally, originally written Thunderball with another person as a pilot, not a Bond movie, but as a pilot for a TV show that didn't get picked up. He ended up reusing uh, the plot for his book, Thunderball. And the guy he wrote it with, Kevin McClory said, hey, wait a minute, I co-wrote that. So in court, they gave him the right to Spectre, to Blofeld, and to the story of Thunderball. He was able to then use that to make Never Say Never Again with Warner Brothers to be a rival film to Octopussy. Once that happened, they, they were not gonna get rid of Roger Moore and risk starting with a whole new James Bond against a Sean Connery-led uh, Bond film. But they did temporarily think that they were gonna replace him with somebody and they screen tested James Brolin, who apparently decided he was not gonna go with a British accent. He was not going to try to even make a, a semblance of it. He was just going to play it as James Brolin. And you can see the, you can see, see the screen test and it is, I think we all just dodged a bullet on that one personally. I'm glad. Thank God for Clevin McClory and his uh, his cash grab, because otherwise That's the we one positive of up. Kevin McClory's scam is that we got to keep Roger Moore for for two more movies. But also, should be noticed, Octopussy outperformed Never Say Never Again, and uh, yeah, we might we might revisit this later on to see where y'all stand creatively on those two movies because I, I'm all in on Octopussy, but I must admit there's some ingredients to Never Say Never Again that I do like but it is just weird that that even happened. In any case, so Adam, I, I interrupted you because I got so excited about the cash being thrown away. Any other questions that you uh, want to throw in right now? And it's really being thrown away. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we're hard at work, man. Yeah, since this was Bill Scurry's question though. This yeah. is re relevant. Uh, yeah. An octopusy. I don't remember where I heard it, but I somewhere I heard that Persis Kambata from Star Trek, the motion picture was up to play the role of octopusy. For, for me, the fact that that didn't happen is as severe as Warren Beatty not playing Bill in the, the Kill Bill movies. Like, once you know that, you can't unknow that. Wow. That also, just amazing. With it said in India, she would have been perfect. She's, she's so exotic and so beautiful. And Maude had already had her moment in Man with the Golden Gun. So she'd had a turn at bat. And she's, I think she even has a cameo in the back of, in the background of a scene in A View to a Kill. Like, Maude Adams appeared, I think, in three different Bond movies. But man, that would, that's a, a, an interesting path that might have been taken. But uh, once again, Adam, I keep promising we're going back to you and then I get, get excited. So yeah, back to you. I just have to say, Becky Deanna just joined the chat. So we have our good friend, Becky. Well, holy hey, Becky. Becky. Hi, Becky. She's been on my podcast, Wrong Reel, 100 million times. She's got her own show coming out later on this summer, which I don't know if I'm even allowed to talk about, but I just did. So cat's out of the bag. And she she's also works in international promotions at Sony Pictures. So anything you want to know about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Men in Black International, she is the person to ask. So, uh, yeah, awesome. Great to have you here, she, Becky. She was excited that we made a Star Trek reference. <laughs> yeah, very, very um, nice. Well, since Bill Scurry made such a generous donation, we'll answer one of his uh, pre-sent questions, which was, James Bond villains have a penchant for eating their oysters with Tabasco sauce. Was this ever mentioned in the books for those that 
of you that are familiar with the books. Any thoughts? Uh, yeah. So Chris has read the book, so that's a yeah, question for him. Yeah. Only, I, I read Casino Royale, and that's it. And that's uh, obviously uh, not a Roger Moore story. Right. Uh, so what's funniest about uh, uh, mentioning Bond in the books in terms of the cuisine is that he is quite a connoisseur for the rich foods. He I, They mention what Bond is eating in almost every chapter, you know, like in his thoughts on the food at whatever hotel or whatever place that he's staying, uh, which was, a very, of course, a very Ian Fleming thing. Uh, he was a foodie. So, um, and in this book I mentioned where Roger Moore, you know, talks about the uh, making of Live and Let Die, he talks about every single meal he eats at every location he's in, which is another reason why he is so, you know, they, they, they sync up so well. So I can't remember specifically if the villains uh, are mentioned eating, you know, gross seafood or anything like that, but certainly Bond loves his eggs. I can tell you that much. He, he eats eggs with every meal. There's a lot of egg consumption in the Ian Fleming books. Doesn't he drink a hell of a lot of bourbon in the Ian Fleming books as well? Because they they do that a little bit in Live and Let Die, where Roger Moore's constantly ordering bourbon. Neat. I'm like, interesting. Yeah, and that's it, freaked me out. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no, all you, but it, but it just seems like obviously everyone thinks about the vodka martinis, shaken, not stirred, but he seems to at least be a bourbon man under uh, under many circumstances, or at least he's he's open to any form of alcohol under the appropriate circumstances, if it's the right booze, the right time, the right setting, etc. If you see a guy putting Tabasco on his oysters, you probably want to alert MI6, you may want to follow him. <laughs> <laughs> They're up to no good. You, you, you know, I've seen it at a restaurant and I've called the proper authorities. So, Excellent. Adam, any other juicy ones on the tip of your tongue? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, here's a note. I don't know if Steven Simpson is on right now or not. I, I didn't. Uh, Stephen Simpson's him. not here. He has to work yeah, today. But uh, that's right. Stephen yeah. Simpson did leave some questions ahead. Of, oh, thank you so much for the super chat donation from Mr. Matthew Booth, one of our pals from Twitter. You are the man. Much obliged. But uh, if you want to add a question, by all means. But the donation is much appreciated. Yeah. Well, Steve, Stephen had a couple questions. Uh, one is, um, uh, I have to ask, uh, favorite Bond theme. We've we've touched on this a little bit. And uh, James, uh, we know he said we know who yours. Which one of yours is? But for the other other guys, uh, what's your favorite Bond theme? I guess of the seven more films that we're referring well, to. I've been on record with I love uh, you know uh, nobody does it better. Radiohead introduced it as the sexiest song of all time. It might be the sexiest song of all time. For your eyes only is um, a close uh, second. And then uh, interestingly, you know the the better themes are in the are in the Sean Connery ones, but. Um, I'd say those two pretty much stand out for me. No love for a view to a kill. I mean, that was the first Bond song to hit number one. But you guys are like ten years younger than me, so I was already a music snob, and I was like Duran Duran. Gotcha. I, like, I like Shirley Bassey, and um, like and they were like your garbage, basically. <laughs> pretty much, and, and what was it? Uh, some people like Aha, but I am none of the Aha generation. I'm of the Prince generation. Um, but, you, you know, you. you know, Cribs and I were talking on Twitter about the best James Bond theme of that era. That's not a James Bond theme, and that's "Hold Me, Thrill Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me" by U2 from the Batman Forever <laughs> soundtrack. That's a James Bond song. It should be anyway. Beautiful. All right, well, now, a quick response to Becky earlier. She said, never tell Jamie anything. That is totally fair. My siblings learned that a long time ago. And I basically said, like, unless you want the whole world to know, tell me nothing, which is probably why I never get any scoops from Sony, because Becky knows I can't keep any secrets to myself on either the podcast or the channel. So, yeah, I think that is uh, that is totally fair. We forgot it already, uh, right. but well, I've got out of the mind. 
We'll yeah, be excited. We'll be excited when there's an official announcement. I forgot all about it. They wiped my head with one of those Men in Black guns. I'm, I don't <laughs> even remember now. All right. Well, I've got a question for Cribs. The only Ian Fleming novel I've ever read is a Mentor Force Casino Royale. But, but as you've alerted alluded to, you've read quite a few of them. First and foremost, what is your favorite Ian Fleming novel? But more importantly, which of the Roger Moore movies has the most in common with the sort? Like, what's the best adaptation? You mentioned Moonraker takes the title and throws out everything else. Are there any good Ian Fleming adaptations from the Roger Moore era? Not really. With the Roger Moore era, they really threw everything out, more or less. Uh, oh, did we lose them? Oh, we might have lost them. Yeah. That Here. is a dated book, to be polite. Hey, uh, we, 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 we lost you for a few seconds, to say. Chris, we lost you for a few seconds. Can you just start over from, uh, from, from the top? Yes, sorry about that. So... Uh, in the in case of Live and Let Die, it's a good thing that they threw everything out because the Fleming book is dated to be polite. Uh, let's just say, suffice to say, Fleming did not write black American characters very well. So uh, in a lot of cases, it was a good thing. The original book, The Spy Who Loved Me, Bond does not appear until page 130 in that wow. book. It's about a Canadian woman and her life leading up to her encounter Bond in Upper New York. It's not very good. <laughs> so Lotus and uh, Carolyn Monroe and uh, Stromberg and all the great things that are in the movie. Thank God we have that instead of what Fleming wrote. Uh, and then, of course, they ran out of novels halfway through the Moors, and they ended up just using the titles of the short stories and small elements you know, here and there. Uh, the, the moment that Tech mentioned in um, For Your Eyes Only when they get... Uh, Dragged among the the coral, the harsh coral reef of the in the inside the ocean is from Live and Let Die. That's something that they took from that book. So they're just sort of taking little elements, the things that worked. But I think none of the more movies specifically are uh, very faithful to the to the to the influencing books. Not not, not like on Your Majesty's Secret Service or from Russia with Love. Some of the earlier ones. Gotcha. Well, shout out to Joe Duffy. I know Joe, Joe Duffy had to basically uh, stop in the middle of like heart surgery in order to hop onto uh, this live stream. So much obliged for you uh, making an appearance. We always love to see you here Hi, hanging Joe. out in the Joe. chat. All right. So I've got a few more questions, but Adam, I just want to make sure I'm not overlooking anybody saying anything cool. Is there anything in the chat yeah, that you uh, want to throw out to, just, to Mr. Tech? Yeah. A lot of people are just chiming in with their favorites, what, making their lists. You know, It's very interesting how differing people's favorite bonds are or how they would rank their favorite bonds, which is something fascinating because in a lot of these franchises, there's like a definitive favorite, but there it's really because it's such a vast generational, uh, there's such a vast, you know, um, spread of bonds over so many decades. It really does depend on when you were born and who was your first bond. And it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, but one other uh, follow up from, um, from Rivera, uh, Jacob Rivera, um, do all of the, uh, do all of you own all the Bond movies on whether it's DVD, Blu-ray, or other formats? And uh, do you have the special box set that came out? I don't know about nine years ago, I think. Uh, Blu-ray box set. I gave my dad the Blu-ray box set, but the last time I owned all the movies was actually in college when I had them all on VHS. And at that point, the franchise stopped. 
And when I bought them all, Tomorrow Never Dies hadn't even come out yet. So it was just basically Dr. No through Goldeneye. And I was very proud. They were pain and scan. They were crummy. They were <laughs> and people barred yeah. them all the time. But this is back in the era where people would watch like the Bond marathons on TNN, where it's just like the worst way you could because a lot of these movies are in, are in 2.35 to 1. So you're just, yeah. it's just you're butchering the movies. But we didn't care. We just we just loved and adored them. And so that was a very proud part of my collection. But that was 23 years ago. But what are you guys? Any any physical media when it comes to Bond? Uh, I have the spy love me, and, <laughs> and that's about it, man. Uh, you know, I like to see these things in the, at the movies, and I, I like to catch them on TV. You know, the, the way I grew up was my dad would call me over, and we'd sit down, and we'd watch the movie together. And I still kind of like that, that they just kind of occur. They just kind of pop up. You know, th th those plots, you asked us who our favorite writers are. They seem to go with some kind of dream logic. They're more like uh, a Lynch movie, really, if you try to follow the plot, or a Kubrick movie, like like uh, not a Kubrick movie, but they just follow their own logic. So I just kind of turn them on wherever and and get into them that way. I've I've never bought all of them and just kind of sat there and done it like that. A quick shout out to Stephen Saunders, who actually is from across the pond in the UK. So uh, he probably has some strong feelings about the Bond franchise. But not only this is very perfect. He gave us five pounds not uh not five dollars so right. yeah we just got a little taste of english class and sensibility added to the podcast but always a pleasure i mean definitely uh check out uh him on his many appearances on wrong reel uh what did he do most recently we're gonna be i got him booked for a live stream coming up about the kingsman franchise but we did a giant one about david lean's career we did a big one about charlie chaplin in any case look up wrong reel stephen saunders you can't miss him he's a great guest yeah, he, he, oh, we did, uh, we did with Neil and I. With Neil and I was the one he was just on a couple uh, couple weeks ago. So, yeah, very funny flick. I just want to add that I discovered um, just a couple days ago that exclusive to iTunes are all the Bond films in 4K remastered from the negatives. So if you have the ability to get them, uh, I, I downloaded the, the Roger Moore collection, which is seven movies all in 4K, and watched uh, two of them over the last 24 hours. And they really do. The Blu-rays were amazing, this, the restorations they did. This just takes it up even another notch. It's just breathtaking to look at these um, in 4K. It really does feel like you're watching them projected on, on a giant screen. So um, a, lo a long way from my early VHS days. <laughs> yeah. That sounds cool. I would check that out. Yeah. Like Mr. Tech, I don't own any of the Bond films on Blu-ray or, or disc. Um, yeah. They're just. We got a hell of a lot of comics over yeah. your shoulder and a hell of a lot of books. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. where I, that's where I get with the Bond stuff. I love the yeah. physical media. I love collecting the books with the, the movie tie-in covers. Um, Show them your Moonraker card. Oh, yeah. That's coming next. <laughs> Moonraker, a wax pack there. Um I love getting stuff like that, but the movies are always up in here. I should show you my other glass, the uh, For Your Eyes Only, which incorporates the um, the model with her <laughs> swimsuit backwards design of the movie poster. Yeah. Oh, and, beautiful. And, and, pretty, pretty and, terrific. And, and, you know, a lot of people would not run that uh, that print ad. If you guys Google that, tremendous controversy over that print ad. People had to cover the top part of it and uh, they wouldn't run it. It, it. I believe Miami was one of the places that demanded that that have a black bar over it. Um, wow. I think so it's one of the all-time great Bond posters. I, unless it's a Robert McGinnis poster, like, yeah, go give me uh, for your eyes only. But I've was, got a question from Bill Scurry earlier. Less of a question, but more of a comment. But he was talking about an expression Roger Moore uses a lot. And it's when he says, oh, whenever something happens that either like embarrasses him or hurts him or causes him discomfort, Mr. Cribs, can you spell oh and give us the best oh moment of any Roger Moore 
performers because I've got one from Free Eyes Only where he trips when he's skiing at the end, right at the end of that big chase. But there are a lot of them if you listen closely. I <laughs> I know exactly what he's talking about. I can't I can't isolate a specific moment in my mind right this second uh, because I was just thinking about the moment in uh, View to a Kill where he's hanging from the Zeppelin and he uh, the wire gets the wire right to the crotch and makes that oh sort of. <laughs> But, but Moore had a lot of like sort of old man <laughs> reactions to getting uh, decked and, and and punched or or hit in the crotch. Well, well, my stepdad, may he rest in peace, used to say "ope" as well. I remember we were over in Moscow a couple of years ago, walking around, and the sidewalks and streets had these little like uneven bits of like where just like things were imperfectly designed, and he would he was always kind of tripping over things where he was kind of unfamiliar with the terrain, and every single time he would say "ope," and I was like, "You got to stop! You got to let's say ow or fuck or goddamn it, or you got to say something different. You can't just keep copying Roger Moore." But he he loved Jimmy, and he he always called him Jimmy Bond. But he was a big Jimmy Jimmy Bond fan back in this day. But I guarantee you, he stole that expression from uh, Roger Moore. But I think Scurry spelled it O W H P, and in the absence of a better spelling, that's the one I'm going to go with. That's pretty strong. I'm going to check some of the comics here and see if they got the oop sound effect in there, <laughs> Batman TV show style, you know. All right. Well, let's get down to some of the controversy from this era, because obviously this was the year of the 1983 was the famous year, the Battle of the Bonds. And as we mentioned before, producer Cubby Broccoli and Roger Moore with Octopussy went head to head with producer Kevin McClory and his Rebel production starring Sean Connery, Never Say Never Again. And this battle got really ugly on a personal level between Broccoli and Connery. Connery used to refer to Cubby Broccoli as the very first James Bond villain and would make fun of him on talk shows and things like that. It was just... they. They were close in the 60s, but they were not close at this point. So without getting too lost in the weeds over how this happened, Mr. Tech, where do you stand on a creative level in this battle? Are you an octopusy man, a never say never again man, or, and uh, yeah, and why? I'm an octopusy man through and through, James. Thanks for asking. I could have told you that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I detest never say never again. Uh, it's flat. It's boring. I love Irving Kirshner. Uh, obviously, he just made Empire Strikes Back, but also Eyes of War of Mars and, you know, so many cool movies. But I don't see his style there at all. I just see a weird, flat movie. Of course, I love Barbara Carrera, Kim Basinger, Beautiful Women. I thought Sean was wooden. Um, didn't care for him in it. And even though Octopussy begins kind of not that the, the, I'm not crazy about those last two Roger movies. Um, I like it a lot better. I like it a lot better. I think it's, it's more colorful, more stylish, um, and really just more of the bond flavor. I don't, I don't, I, I was very disappointed because I had really high hopes for that. I was one of those competition is good and raises all ships. This will be awesome. But that, that was not my experience. So what about you? What about you, Mr. Cribs? I have to admit, I have a uh, guilty uh, enjoyment of Never Say Never Again. Uh, my brother and I were... Oh, oh might have lost him. I'll pick up where uh, he left off. My dad likes Never Say Never Again. Only because there, of... scenario. Oh, sorry. Uh, Cribs, we lost you for a couple seconds. Can you start again from the top? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I have a guilty... Uh, it's a guilty pleasure for me, Never Say Never Again. My brother and I loved it when we were kids. We loved the part where they play World Domination, the 3D video game. Just a weird thing to happen in that film. And sort of a bizarre take on Thunderball and the basic plot. Uh, but I don't consider it canon in any way. You know, I, I, I'm perfectly fine leaving it out of discussions of the Bond films in general. Uh, even though it's kind of it's kind of goofy and fun in its own way. But yeah, Connery is too old. He's way checked out. 
if he was checked but out. He was younger than Roger Moore. Forever. He's three years younger than Roger Moore. Roger Moore's three years his elder, which is so it, hysterical. He feels older, though. With yeah, the he hair feels older. Everything, it yeah. feels older. Even, even by the time of Diamonds Are Forever, I feel like Connery was checked out from the series in a way that Moore never was. I think you know everyone who complains that Moore was too old in the last three movies, he is still engaged in those films. He is still 100% in that character, in that scenario. He's still doing all the fights and the stunts by himself. He's hanging from the Zeppelin. I mean, for me, it's like, still if you skiing. keep doing it, still skiing, if you could still do it, then, you know, keep it up, man. I think he is, as long as he's invested in the character, I'm invested in what's going on. Yeah, yeah and Sean, I like Sean Connery never popped on the skis. That's one reason I got a lot of loyalty for Roger Moore. He popped on the skis on several occasions. And look, damn, my favorite rear projection shot in history is at the opening of Spy Who Loved Me when it cuts to him and he's just kind of chilling and going down the slope <laughs> in that yellow outfit. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But it makes me scream with laughter. He just looks so suave. But the tech, what were you about to say? No, no, that the Roger was so cool because he he adopted his aging into the character. So like he doesn't want to sleep with Lynn Holly Johnson and for your eyes only. He wants to sleep with the older girl. And he's, I mean, obviously, right? She's super enraged. But he 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 kept playing it like kind of cool. Like when Tanya Roberts falls asleep and he's just like gonna he covers her up. He's gonna watch over. He, he's he didn't get old creepy. He got old cool. And um, what's that he, line he uses in for your eyes only? He says like, "Don't ever grow up, darling. Like the the, the other gender will never survive." <laughs> or uh, like that. Yeah, she, she, she's a man eater. She's very aggressive, and and I think he handles everything with that cool kind of aplomb. And as he gets older, the character gets older. As as even though I'm not a fan of View to a Kill, I love the way he plays him. And let me just say that I think Tanya Roberts is very underrated in that role. Uh, she, people say she was terrible, whatever. I thought she was terrific. I thought her line readings were great. And there's a weird scene where they're having a meal in her kitchen, and they're lit super crazy. Their eyes are blue. It looks like something out of, like, the Abyss or 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 one of those James Cameron movies. I don't know. They look like cat people. It's very strange. But, uh, but they're terrific in I'll say just while we're on view to a kill again, there's a little bit of, you know, bias. It was my first bond movie. And so I love it. Um, but I feel like I'm a bigger fan than most people. I feel like, like again, John Glenn really delivers with those action sequences, the uh, parachuting off of the Eiffel tower, and then the taxi cab getting cut in half uh, and then jumping on the boat. I mean, it's got everything. And then the big finale on the Zeppelin and plenty of stuff in between. I love the chemistry between Roger Moore and Patrick McNee in that film it's genuinely sad when patrick mcnee dies in that movie because they're they just got a great repartee even better than Moore does with some of the bond women so i there's a lot to love in that movie and christopher walken is a great villain too zoran is a great villain it's a more, it's more power <laughs> <laughs> that's very good yeah i love walken's uh, relationship with grace jones that's and grace jones yeah. Oh my god, and that's very sexy. And when they're they seem like they're kind of into each other in a way, his smile seems so genuine. There's a lot of genuine kind of chemistry between Walken and Grace Jones. Um, and Grace Jones, when she's with James, she just dominates her scenes. She's so terrific and so magnetic. And I, I do think that movie has a great villain, and it, it also those villains from uh Octopussy and from um View to a Kill are still in the vein of the classic Bond villain. They're very, you know, out there. And what's funny when you see when you see Zorn or even Hugo Drax, it just feels like you're seeing modern figures. You know, like, hey, this guy's gonna make space shuttles and send them to. Who would ever do that? Well, they're doing it now. And this other guy, Bill Scary pointed out, Duff Lundgren. He plays a very small role as a villain in this as well. So you got an early Duff Lundgren appearance in A View to a Kill. 
Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, because he was dating Grace Jones at the time. Yeah, I mean, Grace Jones, she has a, a very special form of sexuality in this, but there's something totally bizarre about the scene where she walks into the room and James is waiting in the bed. Usually in the historic James Bond films, James will walk into a hotel room and there's a beautiful girl in bed waiting for him. He's like, oh, and then he'll start his, you know, giving off, putting, putting, the, putting out the vibe. But it's interesting seeing a man who's 57 years old lying in bed like he's some sort of matinee idol <laughs> surrounded by white sheets. And then Grace Jones gets in and she's like, what's there to talk about? And they just throw down. It is an absolutely wild scene. And she, her, her back is so muscular and oh, lean. Man. And obviously at age 57, Roger Moore is a little less lean. But that was a really unusual sexual encounter. But it, it totally works in the context of the movie. And let's not forget that, that Christopher Walken is outside kind of smiling like, yeah, baby. So you're like, oh, well, that's how it is with that couple. Okay, well, whatever turns them on. I'm 99% uh, sure that was the first sex scene I ever saw in the movie between wow. Roger Moore and Grace. I think it beat out Teen Wolf just barely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, geez. Well, I mean, talk about a crazy first experience. That's that's a legitimate yeah. credential right there, my friend. Yeah, put, it puts you on the path to greatness. All right, well, I'm seeing a question in the chat from John Early. Crazy. And this is a question that I know tech, and this is a question I know tech wanted to answer before we even got started with this a live stream because originally we were going to do a podcast about the Timothy Dalton era. But John Early asked, "The Living Daylights and License to Kill are good or great in your opinion?" Tech, I'll let you take that one. I think the Living Daylights is freaking awesome, and it's so funny because if you look up the reviews, they're the same as the reviews. For the um, for the for the uh, first Daniel Craig movie, they're like, oh, this is a throwback to the Sean Connery. This is a throwback to the brutality of James Bond and the tough guy James Bond. And it's you know, it's almost as if those people had never the people that reviewed the Craig movie that way, which was great. I love Casino Royale. Um, that's if they'd never seen The Living Daylights, was so good. Proof that Bond should never be in in like these earthbound uh, or 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 uh, typical locations is that at the end of um, uh, the other Bond movie, not of the Living Daylights, but View to a Kill. It ends you mean with, License to Kill? Yes, License to Kill, forgive me. Uh, at the end of License to Kill, there's that truck and Robert Davi, and it's all very kind of earthbound, and it just doesn't work well. They didn't make another Bond for six or seven years after that. So I love the Living Daylights. I do not love and have strong feelings about not loving uh, License to Kill. Which was originally Fair. called license revoked, but they polled people and no one knew what revoked meant. <laughs> I swear, the book is license revoked. Uh, John Gardner book, correct, uh, Mr. Cribs? Absolutely, and they did not give audiences the benefit of the doubt. They thought American audiences wouldn't understand what revoked means. No one has ever gone. What's that expression? No one's ever gone gone poor by, uh, uh, I guess, uh, underestimating the intelligence of the uh, the American audience. So yeah, sadly, uh, they they might have had a point to make. But also, I know with a view to a kill, that's a slight title change. Originally, it was from a view to a kill. It's a rare rare uh, moment where they actually abbreviated a classic Ian Fleming title. And I have to say, I think a view to a kill is a far cooler, more romantic title. I agree with that. I agree with that. But to, to, to revisit with Timothy Dalton again, I thought he was a terrific Bond, kind of a nice mixture of Sean and Roger. Um, tough guy, but not too tough. Playful a little bit. I thought he was great. I thought he was great when he was Prince Voltan. I, I'll see that guy in anything or in Hot Fuzz. I think he's fantastic. I'm sorry he only got to do those two movies. Uh, License to Kill, is, I don't care for it so much. It's no wonder it kind of stopped things for a little while. Oh, really? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. 
All right. Well, Adam, maybe it's time to uh, bring in some questions from uh, sure. from Twitter. Any any juicy ones from Twitter and or the chat that uh, well, that you're, got you excited? There's been a lot of uh, discussion about whether or not Fleming was alive to see any of the Bond films, and there were some responses. But for any of you here that know, would you like to chime in on that subject? Like, what was his takeaway of those early Bonds? Cribs, I, I know you got probably asked some strong feelings on this. Uh, Fleming died right after From Russia With Love came out, so he only saw the first two Bond films. But interestingly, he was an advocate for Roger Moore that early on. He thought Moore would be a fantastic Bond. He had to be convinced about Connery. Uh, and if you read the Bond books, it's obvious that he would consider Connery a little bit more of a working class sort of. Connery was a milkman before you know he became an actor. You know he really kind of built himself up. Moore is really an established gentleman. He's got that you know very good breeding and. Uh, comes from a class that I think Fleming recognized as being more Bond-ish. So I think he would have loved that Roger Moore ended up playing Bond ultimately. Cool. Uh, another fun question. Uh, what's your favorite Moore era layer, villain layer? This is from Antonio Stella. Um, essentially, what what was the best play, you know, the best villain layer? Oh, this layer. Anything divided by anything designed by Ken Adam, basically. But yeah, yep. what, which which of these movies did Ken Adam work on? I know he worked on he worked on uh, Spy Who Loved Me, correct? One hundred percent. And Moonraker. And so yeah, and he also and he did the base for um, You Only Live Twice, obviously Sean Connery. But I mean, I feel like it was his volcano base, his crowning achievement as production designer. I would say yes, and I would I would agree. I would say that maybe Drax's submarine is pretty darn close. But uh, I would say those two are the big ones. Um, you know, Scaramanga's lair is pretty cool too. But, oh uh, hell yeah! You know <laughs> got the I mean? fucking like the chamber, like the funhouse chamber of horrors. And all right, well, just to just to jump off of that real quick, when I was watching Man with the Golden Gun the other day, we get to the great scene at the dinner table between Scaramanga and Bond, and I'm hearing this dialogue about when I kill, I kill for king, queen, and country, but killing you would be a pleasure. And I it kind of threw me because I suddenly realized. The great scene from the trip, the Michael Winterbottom film, they actually fluff the lines and they get the they they're doing the, the scene wrong. But I've watched the scene from the trip so many times now that I kind of prefer the way that Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan do it. Like, so where do y'all stand on this? I mean, it's just the it's the essence of Bond, where one villain and you, know, you have villain versus spy talking about killing and why they kill, etc. Who does it better, Brydon and Coogan or Lee and Moore? John. Oh, uh, I don't think I've seen that one. The trip. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh John, it's uh, going to be your favorite. I've seen movie. scenes from it, but uh, <laughs> it's going to yeah. be—it's terrific. All three trip movies are excellent. Um, you know, I got to go more, uh, and Christopher Lee just barely edging out uh, the gents from the trip. But the trip is the funniest thing in the world, and when I watch it, then I—not just the more stuff, but I can't stop doing Michael Caine for weeks. Oh man. oh man, yeah, that that scene is a thing of beauty. I mean, that's a movie that makes me scream like a crazy person. I'm laughing so hard. We're like that. I should probably be locked away. It's Holy terrible. mackerel! Becky DeAndre just threw some cash away. If you could own any prop from a Bond movie, what would it be? Holy shit, that's a good question. Great question. 
Great Does it question. actually have to, so it's prop, not the actual device. So you can't say like James Bond's like magnet watch because it's not going to work. So it's just going <laughs> to be the prop from the set because James Bond's magnet watch would be pretty damn useful. But Mr. Tech, what about you? What prop would you like? I mean, I'm just going to say the, the golden gun. There's just, there's, there's no second, there's no even a close second place. I would like the jet ski from, uh, from uh, the spy who loved me, which I believe in. Maybe John can help me out with this. I, I don't have the Bond movies on, you know, physical media, but I have a lot of books about the gadgets and the locations and all those kinds of things I always get. And I think I read in one of those, or I may have been uh, dreaming or inebriated when I read it, but I think I read that they developed the jet ski for, for your eyes only. And then they were like, let's mass produce these. Do you know if there's any truth to that? I, oh no, I never heard that. That's that's amazing. what I heard that they were like, well, we need a motorcycle that rides on the water. And then it, there's that amazing shot and it zooms back to reveal is James Bond looks like he's on a motorcycle, but it turns out he's on a water motorcycle, and I believe that's how they invented the jet ski, and that's what I would like. Mr. Krebs, what about you? What, what, what toy do you want in your as a stocking stuffer? Wow, that's an amazing question. That's that's one I'd have to actually ponder for a while. Again, <laughs> uh, my current my current answer would probably be boring because I am such a huge For Your Eyes Only fan. It'd probably be the crossbow, Molina's crossbow. Ooh, hell yeah, that would be killer. God damn. I guess we're not allowed to pick a, a Bond girl. As, as, yeah, as a prop. It, has to, it, has to be an, it has to be an inanimate object. <laughs> oh, all right. I got a weird one. What about the blow-up dummy of Kananga at the end of Live and Let Die? As he's about <laughs> to explode. Maybe the dumbest moment in the history of Bond. Actually, the slide whistle in Man with the Golden Gun when they do that brilliant yes. car flip. That, so that, the slide whistle is ridiculous. But the death at the end of Live and Let Die is in the mix as one of the, the low points of the James Bond franchise. But, but once again, it's a movie with supernatural powers and voodoo and all sorts of weird stuff. I guess we can accept the idea of a person exploding like a, a, a helium-filled balloon, but I've always been a little bewildered by that moment. But that would be ooh, an interesting ooh, prop ooh, in the corner. You know something else would be fun? Uh, and again, I guess you'd probably have to say it would be more fun if it was the real thing, but the little alligator submarine that Bond uses in Octopussy. <laughs> <laughs> what about the snowboard from View to a Kill? The snowboard. I mean, talking about a, a product placement that like helped launch an entire sport. I'd never seen snowboarding on screen, and obviously, it's like a ski. It's like a piece of a snowmobile. And I don't like the choice of the Beach Boys music in that moment. But I remember age nine. I hadn't even discovered skating yet. When I saw that, I was like, "Whoa, holy shit! That's cool as shit!" And then, like a year later, started skating. And then I started picking up like uh, Thrasher magazine and stuff like that, and started seeing snowboarding there. But my first exposure to snowboarding was through James Bond. And I still, and I've, I started snowboarding at age thirty and snowboard to this day. That is pretty cool. So nobody could call you a poser on the snowboard. I mean, I've been. I picked it up as because I started skiing as a kid, and so I skied till thirty, and then I just abruptly dropped it and I switched to snowboarding and I haven't looked back. So That's it's a, a, a early midlife crisis. That is pretty cool, James. Pretty but cool. having the original James Bond snowboard from a view to a kill would be pretty money. I'll, I'll take I'll take that prop toy boat with the toy people in it from a, a spy who loved me. <laughs> I sent the picture out yesterday. It's uh... what about Jaws's teeth? Jaws's teeth yeah, would be an Jaws. interesting prop. Uh, by the way, I was researching while you guys were chatting. It, the wet bike from Kawasaki, I believe, was the initial. That's where they launched it. That's how they came up with it. Oh, neat. So, that, so that's yeah, it's a real product. Yes, the wet bike. That would be super cool. What about the life-size mannequin of Roger Moore that Scaramanga has with the missing fingers? 
Oh, I have that already. <laughs> oh, well, actually, that's a, a just to piggyback off of that. Bill Skur was asking earlier for uh, to just in honor of the great Kevin Marr, who we all love and adore and look up to. Uh, Cribs, can you talk a little bit about the use of dummies in these movies? Because it seems like uh, some of them are more effective than others. But this is something that Kevin Marr could probably speak on it at length. Yeah, Kevin Marr is the expert on that. Uh, the dummy main, deaths. the dummy death that I remember most is not a Moore movie, but it's from Tomorrow Never Dies, where the helicopter blows up. There's like a 10 second shot of these dummies in this helicopter before it actually explodes. It looks ridiculous. I can't believe they didn't cut that uh, tighter because it looks so bad. Well, but in, in the Moore movies, obviously this uh, uh, Kananga blowing up and you know <laughs> flying into the air. And for your eyes only, during the Great Cliff scene, there's a dummy that falls off that's a little little obvious. Uh, but that scene's so spectacular. Otherwise, with all the, the Great Cliff climbing, that I, I'll give it a pass. But yeah, it's, um, dummies, has there ever been a dummy shot that actually is convincing or works? But Tech, what are your, what are your feelings? I actually think that the Zorn dummy looks pretty good when it falls off. The, I can't believe how good that sequence looks in uh, View to a Kill. Both Roger uh, hanging from that silly thing and then when he kicks Zorn off with it, you want to have a hatchet fight on the top of the Golden Gate Bridge. Not too shabby. And I love the way he laughs when his arms are slipping and he kind of smiles and laughs. It's like, all right, that's a great, like, maniacal Christopher Walken moment where it really sells just how scared he is that he's kind of going to giggle as he's about to fall to his death. It totally sells it. And I thought that the dummy looked super, super, super realistic in that. I thought that worked really good. Uh, this is not a dummy question, but it's a, a stunt double thing. I can't believe how not good the stunt double is at the top of Moonraker. The guy that's supposed to be Jaws looks nothing like Jaws. Oh, yeah, that's Like that's Richard Keel. I'm like, that guy doesn't even look anything like him. But he's um, smiling so wide to look like Jaws. I mean, it's one of, the, one, of the, one of the worst substitutes I've ever seen. He's flapping his arms. They keep the camera on him forever. I'm like, what, did they drug the theater goers? I don't understand how that was going to get passed. It was probably not easy to find a, a stunt performer of his size. <laughs> An excellent, Probably. an excellent point. And that's, go ahead, Johnny. Sorry. No, sorry, Mr. Tech, go ahead. No, no, please. No, I was just going to say the opening of Moonraker, the, the skydiving, is amazing. It was 88 takes to get that, 88 jumps, for, uh, because they could only shoot a few precious seconds every time they did a jump, but just an amazing sequence. And I believe no one had ever seen that kind of skydiving where you could kind of point at something and sort of fly towards it like superheroes. That was the coolest thing ever. And I remember people in the theater like, oh, what's that? You can't do that. And I was like, oh, you, you can do that when you're skydiving. Yeah, you just have to mm -hmm. kind of be a super. It's a good it's 11 be years Bond. before Point yeah. Break. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an absolutely dynamite sequence. As I mean, Bond films always need to push the envelope on some frontier, whether it's with a car or with physical stunts or with like a great song. I just, they, they, you always have to have those signature moments. Cause for me, most bond movies are not great movies. Like no one's going to compare James Bond movies to the seventh seal or something like that. But you have these sequences, these moments, like where it's, like, where it's a couple seconds, either of action or of dialogue or of humor or of sex, whatever the case may be that it just, it's unlike any other franchise that makes it special. And, you know, and that, that skydiving sequence is absolutely killer. But I am seeing a donation from the great Steven Saunders. Again, what will the effect of PC culture be on bond? Well, if you're here to listen to a conversation about Bond, I think we could probably all agree that PC culture uh, kind of flies in the face of Bond. But the question can't, like, I feel like a great Bond always reflects the era in which it is made. And we are in a PC moment. And I know with Bond 25, they are going to be wrestling with that moving forward, with including even one of the screenwriters they recently brought on board. It's like, 
I feel like 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 with Goldeneye, there's a bit where Judy Dench refers to Pierce Brosnan as a misogynist dinosaur. So I feel like some of the movies do try to address that and make it work. But the question is, do you want to try and punish your fan base for liking Bond? Do you want to tell them, shame on you, how dare you? We're going to change Bond so that it no longer appeals to the people that got us here? Or are you, like, are you going to chase perhaps a fictional audience that might not exist? Or are you still going to make a Bond that appeals to the base? And that's something uh, Barbara Broccoli obviously has to wrestle with. But she's a dynamite producer, and I'm sure she'll navigate this waters very carefully. But what do you guys think when it comes to handling PC culture today, right now in this moment, which is intense, and trying to make a successful Bond film that feels true to the franchise? Well, I hate that moment with Judy Dench calling, you know, saying that to Pierce Brosnan. I thought it was so phony, such a quick little cheap screenwriting. Like if she says this, then it's okay for him to do whatever. And uh, I think there's a way to approach it in a sophisticated, you have to really engage with it, not just do a line and then have him do whatever. But you know, the Kingsman movies are coming out and they're certainly not PC. And, At all. Uh, and they're making a ton of money, <laughs> right? The the last one ends with like, let's have some, the, the first one, let's have some anal sex. Sounds good. Oh, I, I, I love those movies. They're, they're I mean, so goddamn And they, they get, do such a good job of giving it to the James Bond franchise in the sense that, the, you know, they have all these little quips like, well, I like it a little more lighthearted or I like it a little more sophisticated. And all of a sudden you're seeing these great clothes and you're seeing some of the cool locations. And it's, it's, it's fun. I think they shouldn't lose their sense of fun. I think there's plenty of fun to be had. Uh, while addressing many valid points that PC culture has, you know, you can't make it in a vacuum, but you can attempt to legitimately engage it as opposed to just kind of, uh, you know, doing these stupid, not, you know, not, these movies are not super, they don't spend a lot of time, in my opinion, um, uh, working that script out. You know, they're just doing the set pieces and so forth. I'm talking about the ones I like, the Roger Moore ones. Um, so I think moving forward, it'd be fun if they spent as much time on the set pieces as, as on that and just really try to engage with it. Um, that's my answer. Cribs, how about you? I agree. I think, you know, if you try to sort of second guess the sexual politics of these films in the modern films, you're just struck, you're air skating upstream, you know, it's just not going to work. You're just going to be struggling against it. For me, I would never actively defend some of the old Bond films in terms of their sexual politics. I will say that seeing Miriam Dabo's documentary, Bond Girls Are Forever, uh, I appreciated like the representation and the empowerment of these characters through the actresses. Uh, and I feel fine using the, the phrase Bond Girl to describe the actresses who play the female lead. You have to understand that James Bond in these films is the best man in the world. And the only person who could ever match him is the best woman in the world so the idea with these bond uh uh the leading females in bond films is they have to be the most gorgeous and intelligent and resourceful women now sometimes they fail in this mary goodnight is a good example one of the reasons i don't like <laughs> now the golden gun very much hiding in the closet while he bones another girl yeah 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 not so not so much but when they're successful, these are like the greatest. Like triple X or I totally head. believe, like yeah. Goodhead, triple X. I believe that these are the greatest women in the world. And they're or more than Pussy a match You can laugh at the name, but Pussy Galore is a total badass. She's a pilot. She's a martial artist. She's confident. Like I think people who dislike the Bond girls don't really know the Bond franchise. And like you ask, you look at Honor Blackman and she was like writing books about martial arts and self-defense. Like they were finding some badass girls to play these roles. And granted, every once in a while you'll get one like Denise Richards in The World Is Not Enough. And you're like, all right, 
y'all kind of dropped the ball. Let's see if we can pick it up again and do better next time. But you know, Ava Green and Casino Royale thought she did oh, she did a fantastic job. And so every once in a while, you find an actress who's totally game, and you get a writer who can give them a little something extra. And or you look at Octopussy training this like elite force of like superwomen wearing these crazy um, greatest American hero outfits. Running around. I mean, there are there if you are into badass girls doing badass things. You won't see it in every Bond movie, but you will see it in a lot of them. So I think sometimes the reputation of the Bond films is undeserved on that front. But yeah, I think when you have a badass chick in these movies, it only improves the flick. Do you, think there, do you think there could ever be a female Bond? And if so, who? I mean, they already made it. It's called Atomic Blonde. I mean, well, there was a great question for uh, Charlize Theron at Comic-Con a couple of years ago where we knew 8,000 people. In ten, I was actually there with Becky Deanna. And someone asked from the crowd, like, isn't it time for a female Bond and would you like to play it? And she said, well, I'd rather keep playing Lorraine. And I thought it was such a great answer because she's a producer of this new franchise and she's building this new character and she's making it her own. And she got this great fight choreography and it's just this brutal, grim, savage movie with like fights going down the stairwell. She's just kicking all kinds of ass. And I don't think you need to take something away and change it. What you need to do is invent really cool stuff that's as good, if not better. I mean, you could even argue that the Kingsman's movies are better than the Bond movies now in terms of current events or in terms of like the, the recent crop. So I think if you want to have a badass female Bond, you just keep cranking out awesome movies featuring females in the lead, whether it's the Kill Bill movies or Resident Evil movies, whatever the case might be, and you will get your female Bond sooner or later. Yeah, we just need a lot more Kings Kingsman movies. That's what we need. <laughs> Well, they got another one and a, show, and a show on the way. But I yeah. saw a question earlier, which I want to bring up because it uh, it deals with video games. John Early says, talk about the James Bond video games. Did you know they did a remake of GoldenEye video game form? It was called GoldenEye for the Wii and GoldenEye Reloaded. It was technically not the same game. I lost about two years of my life to GoldenEye. <laughs> so I love that game. I played it many, many times. My friends and I in college would put it on four man. I put on the James Bond uh, CDs of the soundtracks that I had at that time. And it went up through Tomorrow Never Dies. And we would turn the music off in the game and we would get blazing high and shoot each other in the head for days. And I got pretty goddamn good at <laughs> that game. We played on the highest difficulty settings I could. I mean, I lived that game. In 1998, 1999, I, I, I didn't need any of the games other than, than GoldenEye. But that is the only Stay out of the Bond game I've ever played. And I think it's probably the best example of a video game adaptation of a movie that, that I've ever encountered. There's a very poor track record of video game adaptations of films. GoldenEye is always the exception I point to because it was a cultural phenomenon and it, for me really it was my introduction to first person shooters but what where do you guys have any strong feelings about the bond video games just that i had the exact same experience in college you get four people in a room yeah and before you know it you're late for class forget about it you know you're up all night playing goldeneye absolutely i, I believe goldeneye was also the first uh video game before there was hd widescreen tvs that had an option for widescreen anamorphic play so if you had the ability to plug that that N64 into a 16 by 9 TV, it would actually fill the screen without it being stretched. And I think that was the first game to do that, which is pretty cool. And even that game is so has so much lore behind it, so much uh, 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 praise behind it. And I've heard James talk about it. And whenever I read an article about video gaming and films, that's the one that comes up every time. As soon as my kids started getting into gaming, I got them GoldenEye. Yeah. Um, you know, I never played it. I'm not a video game guy, but um not because it just wasn't my hero we didn't even have atari 
but um, we had it. But don't, but let your, don't let your son trick you. They'll say all this all them. Oh, let's play a versus match, and you be Jaws and I'll be Odd Job. It's one of those things where the hitbox for your character varies depending upon the size of your character. So if you are tricked into playing Jaws, you're easier to shoot. And if you play Odd Job, you're really hard to shoot. So yeah, don't 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 fall for that trap. But yeah, so if, I, if, I, if I'm Nick Knack. All day I'm winning, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nick, Nick, sadly, they did not make a playable character in the game, but Odd Job absolutely made the cut. <laughs> Very cool. Well, an Odd Job it is. It, it looks cool. I mean, I've heard you talk about it. I hear people talk about. It. I would love to have gotten into that game. Yeah, I'd kill to play. Just do a playthrough right now, where if I could just find like um like a, a I guess if I if I bought the latest uh, Nintendo console, I bet they have an option for buying old classic games. It's, I'm on Xbox One, so it's obviously a rival company, and so I, I can't get access to it. But as a sentimental journey, I would kill. To go through that but all right so it's uh we i just realized it's we've actually are an hour and 22 in before we i mean we're not going to wrap up yet but i i want to give cribs and tech both an opportunity to speak at length about anything that i haven't asked about or someone else's because i feel like in all the research you've been doing and all your passion there's probably certain areas that you would like to discuss that just haven't naturally come up yet so cribs is there anything burning about you about Roger Moore is an actor, as a performer, just about this topic, because I know you've been watching a lot of his work outside of the films. Anything you want to call people's attention to that we've overlooked as we've kind of zigzagged through this topic? Okay, yeah. So if you enjoy the Roger Moore Bond films but don't really know him outside of it, I could not uh, recommend higher that you go back and check out some episodes of The Saint, which he was doing for 10 years before he was cast as James Bond, uh, playing this sort of sketchy criminal character who is very Bond-like in that he, you know, gets involved in all these adventures, he gets involved with all these women. Uh, basically, Roger Moore brought Simon Templar, the saint, into James Bond. He basically brought that character over and made the James Bond character the same as T Simon Templar, the, the Roger Moore, you know, basically formula. Um, there are even parts in the uh, film that they ended up making that combined two episodes together. I think it's called... Uh, I can't remember, but it's the, the saint movie. There's a part where he's being chased by the villains and he's hiding in this uh, city in Italy where he doesn't know anybody. And it's basically exactly the same kind of desperate chase from Octopussy. And then when the villains catch up with him, he's on a bus and he gives them the same sort of smile and, and a wink that he does in for, uh, for Your Eyes Only where, you know, he's keeping his cool even though he's being chased. So you'll see that same sort of uh, more charisma in those episodes. And they're terrific. The Persuaders is also a terrific show. Him and Tony Curtis... Uh, having a lot of fun together. But I think that uh, Bill Tech and I would agree the best non-Bond Roger Moore film is a little movie called Folks, which I know our friend Moose is also a uh, big fan of. Folks is the absolute jam. Uh, he plays, it's also called North Sea Hijack overseas. And he is indifferent towards women, not a fan of women, but he loves kitty cats. So he will be paid not with medals, but with kitty cats if he can prevent certain disasters don't watch the trailer because it gives away the ending as moose pointed out but it is an awesome adventure and then another great um roger moore movie which by the way when they remade the saint with val kilmer that robert evans produced uh the, the voice on the radio that would be roger moore doing a little donovich and radio cameo there but um but the the other great i think uh roger moore flick that's not a james bond flick is the wild geese um, that's the you know how Quentin or people talk about these man on a mission movies. To me, Love that genre. Th there's no better one, I think, than the Wild Geese. How would you describe it to someone that's never seen it, um, John? Wow. So the Wild Geese. It's interesting. In the late '70s and early '80s, that Dirty Dozen formula of the you know ragtag crew going on a suicide mission 
hit the geriatric set, you know, because all the action stars were getting older. Richard Burton, Richard Harris, Roger Moore were older. And so, they're all in this movie, all those three dudes. Yeah, so what it is is basically these guys who were, you know, former government agents turned mercenaries get together to do this one last job, and the idea is they don't know anything else. You know, they, they sign on because the action is what they know. So they go into Africa on this uh, suicide mission, and you kind of appreciate that. You know, it's these old guys trying to cling to their youth in a way, trying to cling to the thing that they know. Uh, rather than to take responsibility and like raise their sons and grow old the way most people do, because once you become that warrior, that soldier, you can't get away from it. It's a beautiful film directed by the great uh, Andy McLaren, who did a lot of great ragtag squad movies. Um, but Moore is fantastic. He's uh, um, introduced uh, uh, feeding heroin to a drug dealer, which is terrific, making him eat his own heroin. There's just so much cool. There's so much badassery in this film with these older guys. So yeah, it's a, a terrific film. It's awesome. And Roger worked with that director a couple times. Um, yeah. Hey, Most quick, quick interruption because I just saw a comment and I want to make this episode perfect for. But if you could, as a casting director or a filmmaker, recast any role or moment in any of these films and insert Albert Brooks in order to make <laughs> that scene shine. Where would you place him in these seven movies? Uh, for me, it's like it's obvious. You make him Q's assistant, and you just turn him loose, making weapons and doing physical comedy, and he would just he would sell it. Well, he's already over. played a great Bond villain in The Simpsons. He played Scorpio. <laughs> he was terrific. I would love to see Hank Scorpio in a Bond movie. And, He'd be a and, great Bond villain. The Simpsons is always prescient. Always has it first, you know. But I would have to say that he'd make a great Felix Leiter. I could imagine. Interesting. Um, yeah. Well, he, wow. He, I, I thought see, the same thing, actually. Yeah. See great minds, Adam. Yeah. He he would be so good, and I think Felix is a character that uh, gets um, because he's not. I I don't know. They don't seem to do enough with him. I do like the friendships, like for example, Patrick McNee and uh, and and Roger Moore, as John mentioned in uh, View to a Kill. It's really it's literally sad when when he's killed. Um, they, they have a good friendship. And then Topol and Bond have that really cool uh, bond and camaraderie, no pun intended, but bond and camaraderie in um, For Your Eyes Only. And it is six movies. There's six movies or, or, yeah, with, the, with that recurring character, starting with Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, that's so interesting. And so, you know, the, the, I'd like to see a movie where it's James and his pal kind of palling around and, and, and having a good time. And, you know, in today's world, the pal could be a female and they could just be two people out having a good time as friends. But um, I, I do like that that aspect very, very much. I think Albert Brooks would make a fine Felix Leiter. Was it uh, Becky Deanna who asked the question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Here she... you go, Becky. <laughs> <laughs> Hank Scorpio. You got to keep talking to that. You got to keep talking to that. YouTube will uh, will yeah. will focus on you. Here he is, uh, Hank Scorpio from the Great Simpsons episode. You only move once. <laughs> oh my god that's amazing that's all right well before we do our closing remarks and where people can find you adam any final brain busters any final just like just kick-ass questions that i've overlooked or forgotten about that we need to uh, address before we start you know moving in for a safe landing yeah i mean i think there were a lot of other questions but we sort of a lot of them were touched upon so i didn't want to really rehash uh the same questions over and over again but um let me just double check here Oh, I'm seeing one from uh, We Cut Heads, a Spike Lee podcast, at We oh, yeah. Cut Heads Pod sure. on Twitter. It says, Sheriff J.W. Pepper, yay or nay? That's a great, that's a great question because yeah. he appears in two movies. 
Good question, Spencer. Hey, yay all the way from J.W. Pepper. <laughs> all day. They, that guy should get his own spinoff. Uh, I, and I like him just as much in both movies. Some people like him more in one. I like him just as much in both. <laughs> he kind of got his own spinoff series because Clifton James played that character a million times. He's in Silver Streak. <laughs> He's always the dumb Southern sheriff. That's like his thing. Yeah, I love it. It's so funny. And it's such a weird thing for a James Bond movie. Yeah. So, Adam, any, any, any other goodies that have been tucked uh, away that I've overlooked? I think we've hit everything here. Um, there was, you know, a lot of discussion about who the next Bond should be and all of that. We didn't really get into Bond 25 as much as we had. Oh, yeah. I, I kept promising we'd talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, yeah thanks for the reminder. So, yeah, just yeah. so I can actually deliver as promised. <laughs> for people out there who don't know, Bond 25, Craig's out for two weeks right now due to a minor surgery, but shooting is continuing. There's been a giant like kind of like revolving door of writers because Danny Boyle took his script and his, uh, and his writer with him. So they had to kind of start over. But apparently there's a dispute with Daniel Craig over who would play the villain. And Daniel Craig, I think has like casting approval when it comes to who he's going to go up against. I know uh, Danny Boyle wanted to use the lead from cold war, the Polish film, but ultimately they ended up going with Rami Malek. And I think Rami Malek will knock it out of the park. Kerry Fukunaga is a, technically the first American directing a Bond if you don't count Never Say Never Again, and I don't because it wasn't made for the Broccolis. So Kerry Fukunaga, that, that as a shift. Otherwise, every other director has been a Brit. I think the cast is unreal. The release date is April 2020. And best of all, when it comes to the female roles, you've got Ana de Armas in there, who is one of the most beautiful women who has ever lived. She is the giant pink like um, you know cgi effect from blade runner 2049 if you if you don't know who i'm talking about and i think uh it, it's high time we had anna de armas uh in, in a bond film i i could not be more fired up to see her in action so yeah just great cast all around you've got ray fines back you got ben wishaw back you got naomi harris back it, jeffrey wright's back as felix Leiter. i think jeffrey wright's an unbelievable felix Leiter. so i'm real excited in spite of all the chaos and confusion that's going on behind the scenes apparently it's a it's a production and spiraling completely out of control, <laughs> but I hope that will lead to interesting final product. That's fascinating. I, I, I'm one of the few people that loved Quantum of Solace. Um, so, you know, other ones, maybe not so much. I don't want to get uh, into that, but, um, you know, I'm excited for it and jazzed for it and uh, looking forward to it. Right, real quick, rank the bonds. Where does Daniel Craig, uh, where does he, where is he in the list? Oh goodness! Well, I would say, hmm, I would say Roger. I would say you're gonna kill me, but Sean's gonna not wind up at the top of my list. Uh, he's not even near the top. He's just not up there, man. It's got to be Roger. It's gonna be maybe Dalton. Although I don't want to be just a contrarian. Um, maybe Craig then Brock. And Brosnan and Connery. I know that's pretty rough. And I do think Connery. And then, then Lazen be at the bottom. Oh my God, poor George. I forgot about George. And I, if anybody hasn't seen it, the George Lansenby documentary, I think it's called Becoming Bond. It's just excellent. Wow, is it good? Um, but but uh, some of the Sean movies are my favorites. Uh, but I like some of the other performances a little bit better. But you know, you I love, where, although where, I love where, Sean Connery as an actor, period, and, you know, in other films like Robin and Marion and Untouchables and so forth. So that's a Tony Stella favorite. So what, what about you, Chris? Where do you rank the, the, how do you rank the Bond films, and where do you place Daniel Craig in the hierarchy? <clears throat> well, I try to avoid ranking the Bonds as many people do, just because 
I really like every actor who's played Bond. I think they all have a really unique take on the character. They all bring their own thing to the table. Um, it really just becomes a matter of preference. I personally think Timothy Dalton is the best actor to play Bond. He's the sexiest. He's the you know his take is just for me, just nailed it. You know I think that Dalton is amazing, um, but that Moore is amazing because of what he brought to it. I mean, like I said, when you talk about the Inflaming books, he taught John Glenn how to pack a suitcase. You know when he got to set, that's what Roger Moore did, and that is so Bond that like I can't even tell you. Um, but everyone has a great take. With Daniel Craig, and not to get too much into it, I think the last two movies derailed him as a character for me. I'm not happy with the writing of the character. I was I was totally in with Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace. I think the last two movies were a betrayal of the character that they the stuff that those two movies had set up. And so I think Anna de Armas is going to help me come see the new movie because I see every movie with her in it. She's no incredible. Movie. Yeah, uh, and, and of course I'll always give Bonds. You know the, the you know. I'll give him a shot. And this and Cribs and I bonded over that. We're similar minds about that. Fifty years from now, will people still be arguing about James Bond and what direction the franchise should take? Because I can remember when Goldeneye first came out. I remember going out to a dinner party afterwards and people were talking so much trash about Goldeneye. And I, I thought Zenya on the top was over the top, no, no pun intended. And that just like everyone was debating every little creative decision and to what degree it was faithful to Bond. But if you were, say, 12 or 10 when uh, Goldeneye came out, you probably regard Goldeneye as one of the all-time great Bonds because that made Pierce Brosnan that generation's Bond, whereas other people might have had a million petty grievances. 50 years from now, when we are hopefully still around at age 92 doing live streams, will we, will we be arguing about the creative direction or will this be a franchise that has long since faded into the ashes of time? You know, when people argue about these things, it just shows how much how invested people are in what is bond what's not bond you know it's great and i love that kind of talk i loved it around goldeneye um by the way on top one of my favorite bond girls she just loved her yeah. this was a roger moore thing but famke johnson who is more cool than, than she is jean gray herself baby oh my god that, she's amazing so um yeah i think this will go on a long way it'll probably evolve and it'll probably change it will be a bunch of crotchety old men going that's not james bond but but uh <laughs> but yeah i think it'll go on forever beautiful well I can't thank you all enough. Everybody in the chat, I can't thank you enough for the comments, for the donations. That's very generous. And I can't thank you enough, for you guys, for coming on wanting to talk about this topic. We'll definitely have to do it again. But Adam, if people want to hire you to do some of your wicked thumbnails, or if they want to bring you on as a producer for one of their uh, short films or products or digital media, where can people find you online if they want to talk about James Bond or any other topic under the sun? Sure, I'm at I'm on Twitter at Adam Rakoff. It's uh, my only social media presence. So if you follow me there, I'll. I'll almost always follow back um, unless I'm you know traveling or something but yeah hit me up I'd love to talk about this or anything else uh, film related and I'm currently helping to campaign for actor Matthew Modine's um, uh, candidacy for SAG after president so if you know any SAG after members please tell them to vote for Modine uh, in this summer's election Hell yeah. We, we just go, we just want political in the best possible way. Some, some <laughs> yeah. positive political news. I like it. That's right. What about you, Mr. Tech? What, do you, what where, where can people find you and what do you got cooking in the oven? And I've, I've 
All right. I already spoiled information about Becky earlier, so I'll, I'll keep my lips tight this time. I'll, I'll learn my lesson. What can you tell us about what you're working on and where people can find you? It's a documentary. It's got lots of rock and roll in it. Pretty much any rock and roller you can think of is in it. I'm really excited about it. I'm having the time of my life. And it, the coolest thing, I get to be in New York, uh, you know, almost every week. So I get to see all these cool people in real life. Like I've gotten to have a beer with with Cribs and I got to, you know, say hi to James and do a live podcast. I got to hang with Bill Scurry and working on with Rob Cottle and, uh, and, and Scurry's helped us out as well. And so it's just been a blast. And um, I'm having a great time. You can reach me on Twitter. It's Bill Tech at Twitter. And you can... Ask me anything about movies, rock and roll, life, love, the pursuit of happiness, whatever makes you happy. Beautiful. And Mr. Cribs, what about you? What's going on in the pink smoke these days? Well, let me first say thank Oh, no, you froze right as I asked. <laughs> well, I can say more. Sorry, you, you, you froze there for a second. Uh, I was just going to say everybody should go to thepinksmoke.com, but uh, go on with the chlorophyll. I'll cut you off. Cribs, can you hear me? I apologize for yeah, can you hear me? Oh, all right, yeah, yeah. Fire, fire away. It's all you. Sorry, I apologize for the freezing. I just want to say thank you guys so much. This has been so much fun. <laughs> I think he's thanking us. Yeah, there. All right, beautiful. <laughs> Your thank you got cut off, but I think the sentiments are obvious. You are thanking yeah. us for a, a fun conversation. And I just thank you for bringing your singular expertise on this topic. We'll have to find another topic where we can turn you loose. But where can people find your website? Where can people find you on social media? Okay, I'm on thepinksmoke.com. We got a great new article from Christopher Funderberg on the talented Mr. Ripley and Purple Noon, the adaptation of it uh, that's on right now. I highly recommend it. It's a great article. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming up this summer. Beautiful. Excellent. Well, guys, thanks again for everybody who tuned in. Can't thank you enough. And yeah, we'll definitely be doing some, some more Bond videos in the future as we get closer to the release of Bond 25. So please remember to like the video, subscribe, leave a comment, all that good stuff. You can find me on Twitter at Colbrex. You want to talk more, but just thanks again for hanging out with us for so long, but more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.